perfect. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Shoulder Sig podcast. The aims of this podcast are to draw upon experts' knowledge to improve the physical therapy management of shoulder conditions, particularly related to the athlete. The management of shoulder injuries is complex, and we seek to provide the clinician with some tools to help them simplify their practice. Welcome to episode number one. My name is AJ Johnson, and I'm a current sports physical therapy resident at Mayo Clinic. During today's episode, we will be discussing lat and Terry's major strains and tears with our featured guest, Dr. Andrew Pipkin. Dr. Andrew Pipkin graduated um, from Lebanon Valley College with his doctorate in physical therapy and has since completed sports residency at UW-Madison and completed the Ohio State University Upper Extremity Athlete Fellowship. Following that, he was working with the Cleveland Indian Sports Medicine staff and has recently accepted a position as the medical director for the Toronto Blue Jays. You would like to shout out a couple different individuals as well as all the mentors that he's experienced throughout his career and especially his wife, Amanda, who is another talented sports physical therapist currently working at the Mayo Clinic Arizona Sports Rehab Center. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Andrew Pipkin onto the podcast. How is everything going today, Andrew? Great, <clears throat> great, AJ. Thanks for having me. Really, uh, really looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, no, it's exciting to uh, be able to work with someone so intertwined into professional baseball and just getting started with the Toronto, Toronto Blue Jays. So, yeah, as we... no, it's a, it's a, it's a great experience. Awesome. So as we kind of get dovetailed into it a little bit, um, spending today talking about Latin Terry strains, kind of like from the baseball athlete, kind of as they come into your clinic, what are some of the key things that they're kind of reporting to you that you're kind of cluing into more? Okay, I'm thinking Lat, I'm thinking Terry's major. Yeah, I mean, great, great question. I mean, as, as you know, and <clears throat> I'm sure many of the listeners will know, these are <clears throat> excuse me, particularly challenging injuries and ones that are sort of unique to the baseball population in, in some ways and that they'll, they'll occur more in the throwing athlete's shoulder than in sort of your normal, you know, regular athlete. But I think for me, from a history standpoint in particular is, I mean, similar to other sort of, you know, muscular strains or those kind of things you think about an acute mechanism or, you know, sort of something that specifically happened. And then from a symptom standpoint, and again, in our, our throwing athletes, that's often pitching or throwing at a high intensity. Certainly it can happen other ways in the weight room or, you know, other accidents. But I think more often than not, again, it's from, from throwing and, and more specifically pitching at, at a high intensity. Um, from a, as I was saying, from a history standpoint, the things that really sort of clue me in or, or make me look a little bit closer for a, there are, are, you know, posterior shoulder pain certainly is a, is a flag and something you want to rule out, but things like there were often report symptoms in their axilla, which is again, an odd spot because that's not a, a normal spot for, for shoulder pain for, for most individuals, you know, baseball players or, or otherwise. And particularly with, you know, some of these lat injuries, they'll also athletes will report um, radiating symptoms and describe it almost as discomfort or, or, or pain 
down into their tricep as well. So that's usually a, a good place to clue in. Sometimes that can even be their, their only symptom or their, their primary complaint is, Hey, I, I think I did something to my tricep or the, you know, the back of my arm. And again, more often than not on exam, the tricep will check out really well, but that sort of should clue you in to think and look back up the chain from that referred pain pattern from the, the lat or the teres where it, where it inserts into that, that axilla. I think those are some excellent clinical pearls, particularly with that radiating pain symptoms. Cause again, there's a lot of different pain generators in that posterior aspect of the shoulder. Yeah. And, and again, that's one of the things that can make it so, so tricky to, to evaluate. Um, so sort of moving into the, the next phase of it after you're, you're getting a, a really thorough history on the athlete and, and, you know, deciding that this is at least in your differential diagnosis, because um, other things you worry about, of course, cuff, labral injuries, you know, instability, all, all those kind of things. Um, but I think, again, for me, it's, it's important to remember the, the functions of those muscles and what they primarily serve to do. So, again, in this case, we're talking about the, the lat and the teres major. And, you know, part of their function is, you know, shoulder horizontal adduction and shoulder extension. So making sure that you're testing those and those probably aren't two that are in, you know, I would say our standard shoulder exam um, when you're evaluating a thrower or, or someone with shoulder pain otherwise for, for most people and, and myself included, but certainly if I'm uh, concerned about a lat or Terry's injury, those are things I'm going to want to check from a, a manual muscle test standpoint, a, a strength standpoint. Um, and just gauge, gauge to see if that reproduces or regenerates their pain, whether again, it's their posterior shoulder axillary pain or, or those radiating symptoms that, that come down their arm as well. And I, I think those, those are all awesome things of not forgetting the true mechanism of what that muscle is responsible for doing. Have you, or thought about implementing like preseason strength testing of all the affected muscle groups of the shoulder with then being able to compare data points if an athlete did experience a strain or is that not something that's kind of been kind of touched on so far yeah it's a it's a great question and i, I would think from um a standard screening uh standpoint in, in professional baseball or, or you know certainly most levels of baseball where they have medical providers available, uh, a standard shoulder strength assessment is, is really important. And there's some good evidence out there to support um, that certain strength measurements can, can be indicative or lead people to higher risk for time loss, shoulder and elbow injuries. So I, I think it's an important thing to look at and measure. Now, in a, in a perfect world, you're only screening one athlete and you have, you know, all day to check every every single measure. But I think in the in the practical sense, you have to be really specific and pick the certain ones that, you know, are best supported by the evidence that you can do efficiently on a, on a large group of athletes. And that, that sort of makes sense to you. Um, and I imagine each each staff and team have their own set of of measurements that they prefer and, and take um, from that standpoint. But again, I think for me, it is, is an important component to it too, as, as well as, you know, range of motion testing at the shoulder. Again, that's another area where there's some, some strong evidence to support the, the use of it as a, as a risk factor um, in, 
in shoulder and elbow injury in, in the throwing athlete. And, and again, in particular, in the, the pitchers that we're talking about, because those are the ones who, who tend to miss more time, have more significant injuries, and then get injured more often as it relates to the throwing related injuries. Yeah, I think that that's that's an awesome little piece of feedback there too. Is it's something that in the ideal world would be great, but in all practicality, it's hard to dynamometer test every single muscle group for every single player participating. Has it been something in your experience where now we're seeing kind of this rise and at least the diagnosis or the awareness of Latin Terry strains in baseball players, especially now as we're throwing harder players are throwing more often, they're being more competitive. Have you implemented any sort of strategies in the off season or in their strength and conditioning work throughout the season to kind of help to respond to that, this increased risk? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a good question. I think probably two points there I'll just touch on. Um, the first part is about the sort of the rise in, in seeming more, commonly recognized Latin Terry's injuries. My guess is it's probably a combination of, of what you were describing one on one hand, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, more recognized. We're better, better able to pick them up with newer imaging techniques, more focused care, more awareness around the, the injury in and of itself. But then also, as you said, there's other factors, you know, the average fastball velocity in, in major league baseball continues to climb um, and, and as athletes continue to push their, their limits of performance or, or push themselves to perform at higher, higher and higher levels, there's a, an accompanying increase in risk that comes along with that. So I, I think, it, I think you're right. I think it's probably twofold and not neither. It's not one or the other, but probably a combination of the two that's led to sort of this increase in number of, of Latin Terry's injuries that we've seen, um, across baseball, not just professional baseball, but across baseball in general. Uh, I mean, as far as prevention goes, again, I think it's individualized for, for every athlete. And, that, and that's important because not no two shoulders are, are going to be exactly the same, you know, left-hander versus a right-hander. Their, their throwing mechanics are different. Their, their profile is going to be different from how their range of motion looks, their strength looks, and what kind of things they're going to respond well to from a prevention standpoint too. So I really think it's a matter of sort of considering all the factors and then putting them into an athlete's not, as you said, not just their off season work, but what they're doing continuing throughout the season and certainly being mindful of other things that may affect it, like their throwing volume in their, their preparation and their strength and conditioning work. Cause again, if they're, if they're, preparing themselves well in the off season, hopefully they're more, more durable and continue to stay more durable throughout the, the course of the season too. But I mean, again, it's a real challenge for these guys who are trying to perform at the, the highest level of their, their profession and, and trying to do it over and over again, over the course of a, a long major league baseball season. Yeah, no, and I, th I think thank you for all that awesome input on the recognition of these things diagnostically, the subjective, the different objective testing that you are impl implementing, and then also some of those off-season things and not forgetting to individualize these strength programs because 
a lat strain isn't always a lat strain for every single athlete who walks in the door. Like you had mentioned, there's so many different variables that we're having to consider. Are they a reliever? Are they more of a starter? So many different aspects that kind of play into that. And I think that's one area that we can continue to strive to improve as a profession of continuing to make sure we're treating those impairments and in these highly active and incredible baseball players, individualizing it to meet their demands to allow them to perform at that highest level. Yeah, absolutely. And the only other thing I'd, I'd add to that, and that was well said, AJ, is just um, I think it takes a it takes a team sort of working together to to be able to achieve that goal of of you know balancing high level performance with you know the needed amount of durability to to stay and perform really well. So it's not just the the physical therapist, it's the athletic trainer, it's the the physician, it's the the strength and conditioning coach, it's the rest of that high performance team that sort of helps that athlete do what they, they, they are really talented at and, and the best in the world at doing. Um, so I think just remembering that team approach is, is really important to that. And, and we're certainly, you know, one portion of that, but making sure that everybody's on the, on the same page and, and moving in the same direction is, is, is really key. Yeah. And I, it, like you had mentioned, it definitely takes a village for any patient that we're working with, let alone a high level professional athlete. Um, so definitely not forgetting those different resources that the individual has access to. So dovetailing a little bit, I, what I found to be successful, at least in my early part of my career is kind of developing these different phases of rehab. So whether it be kind of like pain management initially, range of motion, strength, plyometrics, whatever the case might be, kind of being able to have these distinct buckets of where this patient's at, where they need to go to get to their eventual goals. What are some of the things that if you utilize something like that phase-based where you kind of allocate your lat strains into? Yeah, good, good question. I think again, a phase-based approach is, it makes a ton of sense. And, and, and as you know, and, and using that, that model sort of one phase blends into another versus like true distinct, like, cut points or, or phases from, from one another, especially in a, in an injury, like a lat strain where they can vary from, you know, time lost at as few as, you know, four weeks to as many as, you know, several months or, or greater than a year, depending on if they, they require surgical intervention. Um, so I think, I think for me, certainly early on, you know, pain management and, and swelling, is, is, is key, especially in athletes who've had higher grade injuries and being able to allow, um, allow them to perform even just light range of motion exercises more comfortably. So maybe you're using more, um, soft tissue techniques or modality techniques early on to help them, them feel more comfortable and help regain some of their, their mobility gradually in those, those early stages. And also not neglecting to, as they're able to tolerate it, some, some isometric activation of those muscles to be able to lay down that, that scar tissue or that, that healing scar in an appropriate manner, because we know, we know it's going to lay down. So we might as well use those isometric exercises to help it, help it lay down in the direction that's going to be meaningful to the function of that muscle and, and help long-term. And then from there, again, I think you're really just talking about progressing the loading of that, that tissue, and then trying to increase its, 
its ability to respond to that load too. So managing how much, how much resistance exercise you're putting into it, you know, progressing from, from things as simple as like partial range um, exercises into to more full range exercises and gradually increasing, not just the load, but the, the speed at which they're performing them too. So again, as you're getting into the end stages and, and you've progressed to where they have, you know, good range of motion, good strength, um, depending on how you define those, as, as you said, based on their, their preseason or, or additional findings that you may have. And, and hopefully in the, the scenario like this, you have something to, to base it off of to progress into where they're performing plyometric activities and, and getting ready to prepare to return to a throwing progression as well, too. No, and then, and I think exactly as you articulated, having some sort of like that, here's what my progression looks like to get them back to their optimal function, bearing in mind that it's not strict black lines in between each phase. They're very blurred and like everything in PT school that we hear, it depends. Um, so just being able to kind of flow in, in between each different phase, I think is great. When you had mentioned kind of utilizing some isometrics, an interesting study about hamstring strains kind of looked at like pain-free versus pain threshold exercise. Obviously there's a lack of limitation and research on lat strains, but do you anecdotally have any experience where people do slightly better with a pain-free approach or a pain threshold approach when they're beginning some more of their exercise? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, and I do enjoy that article that you're referencing. I think it was in JOSPT mm-hmm. by, by Hickey and the, the group out of Australia. They did, they did a really nice job with that study. Um, again, I, I think for me, it, on the whether you allow them to put into some pain and how much, it sort of comes down to the athlete a little bit too. Because I think really at that point, certainly, it's, it's how we educate them and, and how they respond and perceive those symptoms. If they're perceiving it as I can handle, you know, a one or two or, or three or whatever you set their, their threshold at, then it's probably okay to load them and work into it. But if they're, the athlete is perceiving a, a one or two or any symptoms at all, when they're performing the exercise as meaning that it's doing more harm injury, boom, that's a, it's affect their understanding and, and re-educate them if you can. Exercise like is not doing them additional harm in an acute injury setting um, such as this. But again, I, I think how much and, and when you you allow them to work into that pain is is athlete specific and, and really knowing that athlete is is important for the clinician to know and understand how they might respond and then paying attention to they do respond to particular interventions, whether that's isometric exercise or other treatment methods as well. Uh, No, I think it sounds like you're talking about the soft side of physical therapy. And I think that's something that we tend to overlook with this return back to sport is we're great at testing out these physical metrics. And now we're getting more ACL research about the um, Tampa scale, kinesiophobia, the return to sport index, these different variables that are assessing more that athlete's mental capacity. And it's something that I think you, you had mentioned, like getting a gauge for right away and then providing this continued patient education about whether it be hurt versus harm in this instance and why it's okay to have a little bit of discomfort because we're meet, you were going towards your end goal and always trying to kind of 
tailor your exercise, your exercises to meet the patient with what they're ready to handle at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's the technology to do and takes a lot of time that object some of our, our other measures, but I have certainly seen it positive, both positively and negatively impact um, recovery from the and, and perceptions of, of symptoms and those kind of things. And again, in some of those cases, it's, it goes back to what we were talking about, a team approach before too, where you're using your, your mental performance staff, if you have them, or your, your sports psych staff, if you have them to, to assist you and aid you in, in ways to either better communicate with that individual or coach them up or or have them assist you in, in guiding that athlete back. And again, not forgetting how, how powerful their brain and their mind is in, in helping determine their progress and, and, and how quickly or how ready they are to, to move on to certain activities too. So I, I think it's, like you said, it can be overlooked, but it certainly is a, a really valuable component of it. And I think I definitely agree exactly with what you're saying. That's an amazing point of you again, our job is to help to facilitate the the athlete or the individual to get them to meet their goals, whatever that case might be. And if a limitation is that mental capacity, taking the onus of like, okay, here's the staff that we have available. Here's what I can do to facilitate that relationship. Because again, that is such an important aspect of getting these players back to performing at a high level. Um, and then dovetailing a little bit, I don't think it would be a baseball based podcast without talking about return to throwing right so what are kind of like some of the things that you're looking at to see hey is is this guy ready to go back to throwing yeah it's a it's a great question and one comes up comes up often and, and we ask ourselves all the time as as newer measures or or different ways to measure um the same techniques come about I think certainly one easy one to, to target for, for most of us, either in the clinic or, you know, um, professional or, or college settings is, is going back to some of the, your preseason screening measures of, of range of motion and strength baselines on them. So you can compare them to the baseline. You can compare them to well-known factors for, for risk for injury. Um, as they're returning to a throwing progression. So I certainly wouldn't leave those out. And then there's, there's definitely different variations of functional tests that are, that are out there too. And I mean, certainly some of them come with more evidence or exposure than others. And I think, I mean, the key for me with, with all of it, as, as you're deciding it, is understanding what you're getting out of a test and making sure that it's, it's done well and properly so that you get really good, consistent information and can trust that information that that's coming out of it. And I don't think we'll ever get to a point where there will be one test or even one or two tests that'll be the end all be all for return to sport for whether it's a throwing athlete or an ACL injury. Again, the, the places that I've seen do it, do it really well, have a, a battery of tests um, that include things like range of motion, strength, um, functional, functional testing, and, and they sort of progressively do it over a period of time. So it's not just like, again, you're six weeks out from this injury. We think you're ready to throw. This is the first time we're ever going to measure your, 
you know, range of motion strength or have you do this particular functional test. Again, you could, you could pick your choice of a functional test to sort of, to fill in there. And then I think the other thing for me is, is what we were talking about before is their, their tolerance and what their progression has looked like to that even if they're two weeks out from an injury and, you know, their range of motion is great and strength looks pretty good on a, on a handheld dynamometer, but if they haven't done a significant amount or what you deem as enough strengthening work to sort of stabilize that, that, that injured area or the areas around it, then, and they haven't progressed to plyometric activities you, it probably can't lie completely on just those objective measures either is sort of a balance of what has their progression been to that point. Cause I think that's going to dictate some of their, their readiness and hopefully then their, their relative success in that throwing progression as well too. So I know that's not a, a clean answer, but I think this is an area where more research is, is certainly needed. And, and again, I don't know that we'll ever get to a place where it'll be, Oh man, it's these one or two tests and you can always know one way or another if somebody's going to feel good when they throw or not. Cause it throwing is just such a high speed dynamic movement. It's, it's so unique that it, it really is hard to replicate, um, in lots of ways. No. And I think you hit the nail on the head. There's no exact formula, at least not that we're aware of right now. And it's taking into account, all of those different things going back to our body structures, impairments, flexibility, range of motion, strength, tolerance, the higher velocity loads, and then just being overall aware of the limitations of that exam or of that specific test, bearing in mind that test is only going to tell you how that patient or that athlete is able to perform that specific test. Everything else we're kind of assuming as a result of that. So what you kind of had mentioned being more cognizant of your progression throughout therapy, throughout your rehab, throughout your plan of care, I think oftentimes can inform you more of, of whether or not the patient's going to be able to tolerate a throwing program. Cause you're like, yeah, we hit strength pretty well. We started supply of metrics. He did really, really well with that. And I think he's going to do well versus like you had mentioned, okay, let's just put him on a plyometric functional test at six, eight, 10, whatever number of weeks out. Um, I think that's going to give you definitely a little bit more data and input into kind of, or at least more confidence in your decision. Yeah, absolutely, AJ. I agree. And I guess the the one thing, uh, the other thing I failed to mention sort of as you're thinking about that stuff and, and you referenced it with the time part too is, is time, but from time from the biology standpoint, again, we have, we have a good evidence base to support the, the biology of healing and those kind of things. And, and everyone's going to sort of fall in different ranges on those categories based on age and their health and genetics and, and certainly tons of other factors too, but especially again, being mindful of, of the biology of their healing too, and, and being, being respectful of that at the, at the right time as, as well. And again, that's, that's one of those things that we don't have always as much control over, but it's certainly something to, to be, to be mindful of in, in the progression for, for any, any injury really. 
And I think that's a great talking point to your athletes to say like, Hey, here's what we know physiologically of what's going on. These are when we're going to start to anticipate some semblance of change, because I'm sure your, your athletes are coming to you like, Hey, like, when do you think, like, when is this, we're all caught up in the, when can I do this? When can I do that? And relying on some more of those evidence-based like physiological numbers of okay here's how long it takes for tendon to heal here's how long for bone here's how long for muscle and then here's how long it takes for neuromuscular strength changes being able to provide at least a framework to the patient or athlete and say like yeah here's when we would expect some semblance of change obviously this isn't the end all be all like we know with acls we're not like okay six months nine months we're gone we're, we're doing a lot better job testing um, but it's still definitely some room to improve with the shoulder as we kind of end end our kind of discussion today i kind of want to end with a couple different questions so first one being what are some of the common pitfalls that either you've experienced or you've seen um, with whether it be mismanagement or just things that should have been focused on more when managing these injuries yeah again i i think this is uh these are tough and and unique in that they're um they can be hard to recognize at times if if you're not looking for them um sometimes these are one of those things that you know say you know it sees us sometimes when when we don't see it so i I think just putting it on your differential and and being aware of it is is a really good place to start um and making sure that it's recognized early and and diagnosed early because that can, again, set you up on the right path of treatment and, and planning and, um, and, and really using our, our physicians at the right time to help us help guide us in that and understanding, you know, what, what injuries are there, but the severity of them as well, too, whether that's from, you know, a physical exam or, or advanced imaging as well to help guide decisions about conservative or, or surgical management, because these, again, are, are one of those injuries that can fall along that scale where depending on the location and the severity of the injury it can go from you know a a mild strain or a strain in the muscle belly that is is weeks to get back to the playing and at a high level to you know more significant injuries at the at the tendon level or you know off off the bone of the injury and avulsion injury that that may or may not require surgical intervention and again that's certainly something that that needs to be seen by by an orthopedic surgeon and and a uh, recognized early on to help make those decisions and and make them in a, a timely fashion to get the best outcome for the athlete. Yeah. So it sounds like just kind of like being aware of, again, that early recognition in this instance is key to best allocate resources to help manage that patient in the most efficient way possible. And then I think last question before we wrap on up, just kind of reading through the literature, the return to sport rate is pretty high at 75-ish percent, depending on what kind of study that you look at. But then return to prior performance is a little bit lower, which we kind of see out without the the body of literature and kind of pretty much all musculoskeletal injuries. So I guess first question, why do you think that this return to sport or this return back to performance rate isn't a little bit higher? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think because sort of what we were saying before that it's probably been more recognized recently. Um, and as it becomes maybe a, hopefully not, but we, we've seen it trend upward as far as it's, it's ranking in the, the injuries in, in baseball. 
it probably will uh, grab more attention and, and study from a, a, a research evidence-based standpoint to be able to apply better, whether it's prevention principles or rehab prevention, rehab principles, sort of what you're describing with the, the way hamstring strains are studied, um, you know, around the world and how frequent they, they occur in, in all type, different types of sporting events. So I think some of it is the, the newness or uniqueness of it and, and the population that it occurs in. It's not as widespread as, as other types of injuries. And that's part of maybe what, what lends itself to that sort of rate, if you will. And then again, I think it's just some of the high level demands Are, are undertaken in, a, in an elite level throwing athlete. It's a really high, high ceiling to have to get back to, whether it's a, you know, just getting back to return to prior performance or even just return to play. I mean, it is, a, it is an elite level for, for some of these guys. And those are the ones who are, are more studied in the literature, at least, at least presently. No, and I think those are all amazing talking points. And again, I want to just thank you for being on. I know this conversation has been great to kind of discuss with you who are who are on the front lines of this new investigation into the lat strains and this, this athlete population that's so unique. Um, so just being able to pick your brain has been awesome. And hopefully the listeners are able to take, whether it be one clinical pearl, something, anything that can help them to feel more confident or comfortable in recognition of this, this injury or with the management of it. Um, and then I think that would be a, that would be an awesome thing that I would take um, pleasure in being able to help with. And I'm sure you would as well. Yeah, I know. Thank, thank you for having me, AJ. It's been, been a pleasure talking and, and being able to exchange some ideas on this topic. And again, I'm always looking to, to learn and continue to continue to grow and, and, and exchange ideas. And again, hopefully all the listeners were, were able to enjoy it and, and take something away from it as well too, to, to be able to help the, the athletes and, and people that they're seeing, you know, again, whether it's in their training rooms or, or clinics or, or wherever they're, they're helping take care of people. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Andrew, for, for your, um, for your time. I know it's, it's a valuable commodity these days, especially as you're gearing up for spring training. Um, but again, thank you for taking the time. And I want to just thank the shoulder SIG, um, overall, as well as all the board members for allowing me to kind of begin this, um, podcast. Um, but again, we'd like to thank Andrew for taking the time to be with us today and also thank the board of the shoulder SIG of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy for their continued support with this podcast. You can reach out to us with any feedback, good, bad, ugly, um, or ideas or topics that you'd want covered via our email, which is shouldersigpodcast at gmail.com or by engaging with us in the shoulder SIG mobilize app. Again, this podcast will be available across all major music or podcasting streaming services, and we hope you can join us next time. But until then, we hope you have a great rest of your day.